Golden Sun, in one word, is tension. Inside the book's last chapter, Pierce Brown releases all the mounting tension and transfers it into a moment of unforgettable betrayal. My name is Philip, and my good friend Jeremy and I are going to talk through the last moments of Golden Sun in our season two finale. Jeremy, we're here at the last chapter of Golden Sun. This chapter shares the same title as the book. This book has been full of highs and lows, peaks and valleys, surely more valleys than peaks, but uh, this is overall, this is a book full of tension and anxiety, at least for me. And I actually weirdly like this last chapter, this last scene particularly, just because it's a release of all that tension. And Pierce Brown finally gives a clear path of who's on whose side, who you can root for and where you go with that. You have all this kind of like undercurrent of this story, the Jackal and Darrow weaving together, Roke and Darrow drifting apart. You're kind of thinking, what is he gonna do with this? What's gonna happen here? And we finally get our answer. I'm not saying this to be controversial, but I actually like this moment because now just hand me Morningstar. I know who I'm rooting for. I know I'm on Team Darrow. Let's go. I think this parallels pretty well with what you were saying. I'm I'm glad that Pierce didn't kind of do this traditional cliffhanger moment, uh, similar to like dumb TV shows where really before the drop, they're like, to be continued. Mm. And you don't even know at all what's going to happen. Uh, and I think that wouldn't serve this very well. I think instead he gives the readers at least a bit of a sense of resolve before it goes. I mean, we don't know what happens to Darrow. Well, you and I know, mm -hmm. but in a broader sense, uh, the readers don't actually know what's going to happen. But at least, you know, like you said, the lines have been sorted. You know, you, you know who's good and who's bad and, and who opposes what. And I, I think that gives some clarity and probably gave patience to those uh, waiting for Morningstar uh, yeah. in between books. You and I had the benefit of just going from books two to book three because we read them after Thank they God. were out. I know. <laughs> I I feel sympathy for people that had that experience of having to wait the full calendar year because that, that would have been agonizing because oh, you and I are so yeah. deeply invested in this story. And I know a lot of people listening are too. And there's a lot of those people actually had to wait that calendar year for Morningstar to come out. I do not envy you at all in that process. I have a question for you, kind of taking you back to that first time, Jeremy, that you read uh, chapter 51, specifically again, this last scene, the triumph ceremony. Did you feel this coming? Did you feel like there was this kind of big drop or big twist like on the horizon? Or did you kind of just, were you just completely caught off guard? No, I wasn't caught off guard. I, I anticipated something. Had you asked me in the middle of the chapter what was going to happen, I, I wouldn't have gotten it right. But at the same time, <laughs> Pierce does foreshadow a lot of this stuff. He, yeah. he adds these elements of kind of this misgiving, uh, a feeling of that, this unsettled feeling within the reader uh, from various things. I mean, uh, you know, he sees certain movements of pinks mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't seem quite right or, or even familiar to him. There's a lot of other things that, that are kind of 
noted here that gives you to give you a sense that something's funny. Yeah, in retrospect, they actually you can see it on the second read. You see the you pick up on those little things. The first time I was completely caught off guard. I did not pick up on those subtleties, but on rereads and you know, we, you and I have gone through just this chapter alone like five times this week. But in those become even more clear each time you dip your toe into this chapter. Uh, to visit a couple of those, the one that sticks out to me the most is this idea that Darrow notes the decor. And this is one is something I cannot get away from. He says like, and you know, he, he talks about how the jackal was the one that decorated this smaller intimate triumph ceremony and where Darrow is going to receive the triumph mask at this kind of outdoor, sounds like a very beautiful place, a very beautiful garden. But he says the jackal is a tastefully modest creature. That's kind of the internal quote he gives. And I, like, I was thinking the reason it's tastefully modest, probably, because I think that that is the jackal's aesthetic more or less. Right. But also, I think it is that way because in just a few minutes, it's going to be a, a physical burial ground. So why bother <laughs> dressing it up and making it lavish when it's about to just be a place of carnage? That, that to me, I cannot get in the rereads. I can't get away from that single thought. Like, there's a reason it's tastefully modest. It's because it's going to just be all hell break loose in just seconds. Yeah, Pierce does that fun thing where... He puts you in Darrow's mind, obviously, and at the same time, he takes you along with Darrow's rationalization of what's going on. Like, yeah, he clearly says something's wrong here. This doesn't smell right, but I know, you know, he's a tasteful creature. Then he goes and he talks to Lorne and says, hey, uh, you ready to give me the triumph mask? Right. And Lorne goes, oh, wait, you know, I don't really want to do it. It's not my bag. Uh, instead, Roke's going to give it to you. Yeah. Actually, as a matter of fact, he asked me, right? <laughs> And I don't know if you forgot to read the other 50 some odd chapters, you might question this. But if you did read them, you're like, what? Why would Roke want to present this to him? And and then he again, he rationalizes it in mind. He goes, no, this is a great kind of a start idea. to a friendship again. Like, yeah, we got to get right back into this thing. And, and this is a good start. So I think Darrow continuously takes the reader along with these rationalizations of just what's going wrong here. They're one-off sentences, mostly. Victor has a quote as well about how Adrius had to comb through the Citadel staff because the Bolognas have it and they messed it up. The reason why Adrius had to comb through the Bologna staff is not just because he had to comb through for spies, but he also had to implant his own spies. And that's why there's that reference to that because Vixus and Lilith are there about to be a part of this heinous act. So it's funny that, like you said, like in a singular sentences in passing, they seem very innocent, but in the aggregate, they're damning. And you're like, holy crap, like this, this something doesn't smell right to you, to use your term. I like those things in the rereads. This chapter has a lot of depth to it. I do want to pivot and talk about Adrius Augustus, who is at the center of this chapter almost entirely. I want to take you back, Jeremy, to a conversation we had on the very first episode of season two, which was titled Golden Sun. And we just kind of broke down the book. We talked about it in a very broad way. And then we kind of came together at the end of that podcast and talked about that scene where the jackal and Daryl meet for the first time in that the Lost Wee Den, which is the restaurant right. that Adrius owns. And I speculated that Adrius is the title character of this book. He truly is the golden son. And as I've gone through this entire book with you and, and done this season on Golden Sun, I actually more so believe that, especially going through these last uh, couple chapters over and over and over again, 
the reason why is he wins he wins the book he takes the crown he literally rips the crown essentially off darrow's head and puts it on his own by the end of this book so i do want to kick it to you you were more on the fence about this theory than i was but i think that adrius is the golden sun <laughs> where do you stand now is he or is he not yeah i think for those who listened my mind hasn't changed overall Boo. i still <laughs> I know. I still absolutely love your theory. I, I really do. Like what I originally stated, it's completely worth uh, exploration because there's a lot of merit in in looking at that argument. I still think that, you know, if you were to talk to Pierce or just see his intentions here, that Darrow is, in fact, the golden son, that his ascension to the adopted son or, or almost the adopted son yeah, of the Augustus family was the point of the title of the book. But that being said, I mean, you're right. Adrius is the victor here. He is the one that in the end holds the title of, you know, the son. I mean, he kind of stole it. He'd stole the crown. He's the victor here. Yeah. I, I just kind of, I know it doesn't have any weight on the actual book. I don't think it does. I've actually thought about that. Does this mean anything? Does it mean that if we were to hand that moniker over to Adrius, like he's the golden sun, does it mean anything for the book? I don't really think so. I think it's just more of an interesting conversation, more or less. And for sure. And moving on, though, even though I believe that he is the victor, he is the golden sun, that's just my personal belief. As I dig into this chapter more and more, I feel like Roke is actually more of like the MVP of this whole book and this whole <laughs> story, this whole greater uh, chapter here. And he kind of steals the show. It's like, yes, it's the Jackal's victory and he comes out on top, uh, like how Daryl came out on top in book one. But yet this doesn't work. This this doesn't get set off. This plan doesn't get into motion without Roke committing the act of betrayal that he does. I have two quotes that I want to go ahead and reference here that I think are really interesting and I've been thinking about them a lot. And one is from Darrow and one is from Roke. They kind of build into this moment of, of Roke's betrayal. And it, we, we, we kind of talked about the Galax week. And now we're talking about the last scene of the book, the triumph ceremony, because they do kind of, in a way, for Roke specifically, they kind of come together. They become bookends for his story throughout Golden Sun. Yeah. And there's this quote from Darrow right before he poisons Roke, right before the gala. He says, I think we could have been brothers were this a different life? And then obviously that's a past tense moment, a past tense saying. And then he takes out the syringe and puts it into Roke and Roke passes out. And then you have this moment that's almost identical to the one that Darrow had, but Roke is now the one offering the quote and now offering the poison is, I would have died for you a thousand times more because you were my friend. Both of these sentences are goodbyes. And also, they're both past tense. And man, I, I find this so bitter, so bitter and, and just hard to stomach because you really want it. I know Roke's a big character for you. You like this character a lot. Like, I do. It, it's so heartbreaking for this, this heel turn to happen. And I do want to just ask you as a Roke fan, where you kind of, what do you kind of go with this? I too think that this story has a lot to do with Roke. I think that he's this common thread. I think that you see a lot of these double sides of what is happening with Roke. You know, he's poisoned, now he's the poisoner, like you pointed out. And there's a couple others that we've kind of brought forward throughout the season. But yeah, Roke is MVP, I think. You know, and you think of Adrius kind of being the victor, and, and he still loses a lot here. You know, mm. he, he loses his humanity in this scene. So I'm not entirely convinced that he's like this ultimate victor, but there's definitely an argument to Roke's case. He's been 
kind of put on the back burner for this entire book. Mm-hmm. His friendship is is dissolving. And suddenly, you know, he has this chance to kind of emerge and kind of reach this blossoming that, that he believes is within him that you really haven't seen from Roke yet. I mean, for a gold that goes through the Institute for a peerless, you know, he's, he's pretty benign, I think up to this, up to this point. Mm-hmm. And this is really this kind of coming to age, I guess, in a, in a distorted way for Roke. But one thing I wanted to ask you though, uh, about these quotes, uh, especially Roke's quote is the book specifies it as a goodbye that he's giving Darrow. But I'm wondering, you know, is Roke saying this with lament or is there really spite kind of undergirding his comment because he sees Darrow as a slave and, and not worthy? I think that it's fake lament. Roke wants to be this character. Like he he leans into his own hype, I guess. Like this character, I feel like he's incredibly disingenuous a lot of times. And he wants to be this poet. He wants to be this person that has these deeper feelings. And I think to a point he does, but also I think that he plays into it. And he's doing that here. Like, I would have died for you. I would have done this for you. I would have, you know, it's, he's saying goodbye, but it's like, I don't know. I don't, I think his true character is shown more or less very shortly. So let me fast forward a little bit and kind of like after we get through the chaos, after the plan is executed and Adrius kind of goes full Adrius and just starts killing everybody with Vixus and Lilith's help and, and, and others, Antonia as well. There's this private moment that happens with Roke and with Darrow. It's this quote where Roke bends down in front of Darrow and says, no, no, you are a son of red, I a son of gold. That moment where we are brothers is lost. And in this world, the power of gold will never wane. This is a response to Darrow and his kind of drunken, drugged state saying, Roke, brother, brother. And then he leans down and says, no, no, we're not brothers. There's no way in hell. There's no world (laughs) that we were ever brothers. So I think that there's a showmanship to Roke to address your question, that he is doing this for Darrow in the state that he can, where, where Darrow is fully aware before he gets poisoned. Right. And he's kind of doing a show. And then, you know, Nero is standing next to him. Adrius is standing next to him. There's people around. But the private moment, the moment where Roke and Darrow are just one-on-one, that's who Roke is. That's what he's actually feeling. And that's why he says what he says. So I do not think that there's true lament in Roke saying goodbye. I think it is entirely false. And I think that is more of the poet personification of Roke. But I think I just read the quote that is the true Roke. Yeah, I like what you said here. Although I think it's a bit of a hot take to kind of take Roke's character as the poet and say, you know, maybe he's not actually the poet. (laughs) Maybe that's just a something, a guise that he puts on, Mm -hmm. a, a narrative that he plays out. And really, you know, he's just what you said, you know, just that cold, spiteful gold that is incredibly elitist. But there's definitely truth that I I think you make a good point. You know, that does kind of answer my question that he comes back and tells him. And it's it's clear that there was no lament for a lost friendship there. He's he's over it. I mean, I could be wrong. Right. And I don't want to make sure I don't want to like my answer is not going to be the answer that everyone listening is going to have. And We've addressed this a lot of times throughout this season, and this book really highlights this. These people are full of duality, and they have different sides and different dimensions to them. So possibly, 
Roke is incredibly disingenuous and he leans into being the poet and as a public figure and then a privately he's more ruthless like that quote addresses or maybe it's just the answer is both because that's who people are people are full of uh, different sides so I'm not sure but that's my I still have conviction for my answer because I think that's what he he showcases that he showcases how ruthless he is and that there's just no way that we were ever brothers and, and that world is lost it's gone it doesn't even exist that's what he's saying, and that's that's really brutal on Roke's behalf. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. I want to come back and dig into some really hard to stomach moments from this chapter because I think that's the way you got to do it. You got to lean all the way in. So let's go and take a quick break. Broadcast here. If you're hearing this, I'm away from my post. In my absence, I've routed all lines via Patch Bay to their corresponding channels. So if you know the frequency of the party you're trying to reach, just dial it at any time. And if you're trying to reach me, leave a message after the tone. Well, this is awkward. In my haste to be off, it would seem I failed to account for the final ad read. Now before you go and drag me for my apparent ineptitude, can we just take a moment to appreciate how gory damn good it feels to be on the winning side for once? And, given the circumstance, I suppose one might find it in their heart to forgive one or two minor oversights and not hail a person's private calm a dozen times before sunrise. Okay, technically it's midday, but you get my drift. Uh, I definitely need another round of the... Wait, what do they call this? Pina Colada. Brilliant concoction, that. It's squeezed from the flesh of these two ancient earth fruits blended together with this delightfully potent distillate made from, I kid you not, grass. And then you sip it right from the husk of this little droop. They even dress it up with a tiny parasol. Slagging adorable. Oh, sorry, I've got a job to do, haven't I? Let's see, I normally have some music going while I... Oh, pardon me, friend. Yeah, do you mind playing a little something, you and your group? Wonderful. Uh, any old tune will do, really. Or an original, if you have it. Perfect. If you could stand just there and await my cue. All right. Seeing as it's our last chat for who knows how long, I really ought to leave you with something more thoughtful, right? Now, I may not be as poetic as that prick Fabii, but I do know a bit about friendship. And if the wisdom of my forebears holds any truth, I'm betting we'll need each other again before this is all over. So... In the words of House Sona, Amicus protexio portis. My friend is a strong defense. Okay, hit it. Hail Reaper is brought to you this week by Terigian Law. If you're seeking legal counsel or you're in a situation that you're not sure how to handle, Terigian Law might just be the answer. They offer a free consultation to assess your situation because not every attorney is the right professional for the job. The great thing about Tarigian Law is that there's no double speak, no confusing language, no upfront commitment. It's just a conversation with someone who wants to understand what you're going through and help you get to the next step. Getting started is easy. Just call 559-627-5399 or visit tarigianlaw.com. That's T-O-R-I-G-I-A-N-L-A-W.com. No matter the circumstance, we all deserve peace of mind. So stop sitting with the uncertainty and get the advice you need today. That's T-O-R-I-G-I-A-N-L-A-W dot com. 
or call 559-627-5399. Tarigian Law. The advice you need, minus the BS. Jeremy, I want to lean all the way into the sadness and the craziness of this chapter and and all the violence and all the murder that happens. I, I know that sounds crazy to do, but it is part of the book and it is part of the chapter and it's one of the heaviest and most memorable moments of the entire first trilogy. So let's go ahead and talk about it. I, I think the best way to talk about it is to kind of explore those moments that individually made us just like, oh, like feel that gut punch and kind of how hard they hit. I have one specifically that I want to talk about and it's actually a quote from Cassius who comes in kind of after things are, are taking place. Uh, he lands next to Aja. He walks up to Darrow and he asks Roke, he dresses him so formally. He says, can he move, poet? And Roke says, no, but he, he can hear you. And Cassius says this to Darrow. Julian, Leah, Pax, Quinn, Weed, Harpy, Rotback, Tactus, Lorne, Victra, they deserved better than to die for a slave. And I just like, that is such a gut punch to me. Um, you know, you're mentioning some of my favorite characters in the entire series, like no joke. Uh, both Tactus for one, for sure. And also I love Julian, even though he's in the book for just a hot second. Really care about that character, really love that character. And just the other characters too, like there's so much sadness in some of these deaths here. And you're almost forced to confront them. Pierce Brown is like bringing them back to the surface for you as a reader and making you kind of relive that just in a single sentence and just how hard that hits for Darrow too because Darrow knows it. Darrow knows that they died following him and he wasn't honest with any of them. It's a great moment in the writing for sure. For me, I'm gonna think a little bit outside of the box and actually reiterate something that I brought up earlier. Adrius loses his humanity in this moment. It's an incredibly sad moment to me. And you may not even like Adrius. I know there's a lot of, of Jackal haters out there. Yeah. He's clearly a, an antagonist and disliked for that reason. But at the same time, you have this real sincere moment between father and son where this entire time, Adrius has been seeking the approval of his father just wanting to be even acknowledged as a son. There's this interesting give and take in the, in this dialogue here where he finally is called son to an extent. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of this throwaway kind of like, son, you're ruining the family. But, yeah. but at the same time, I mean, it's probably the one time he's ever heard that in his life. But it's it's too late. He's already lost his humanity. He's already, it says he, you know, he sheds the rest of it and he fully embraces the jackal. And now he's just an evil monster and his father reaching out to him, even if it's in some sort of selfish, vain effort, it's just too late. Adrius has made up his mind. He's already on the path he's going. And I, I think as a father, and you probably feel this too, just watching this relationship dissolve and, and watching the impact of kind of starving your child for love his entire life what the impact that has on someone's future, what what can become of that? I mean, like, is Adrius responsible for his actions? Absolutely. Yeah. But would he have gone down those paths if his father was there for him? I mean, clearly Mustang didn't. He shared horseback rides with her. There, there wasn't like this overt, crazy amount of love there. But 
he was proud of her and happy that that she was his daughter. Yeah. Very much unlike leaving your son on a rock to die when he's a baby. That dynamic is so crazy and it's so hard to read about. And it's like you said, he's like, oh, now I'm your son. And then that's the end of Nero in this entire saga. There's one more thing I want to talk about. It's the last big gut punch moment. And it's this unique one, actually. Pierce Brown has these references to a statue. And they happen four times just within these last few pages of the chapter. And I'm like thinking, why does he keep referencing this statue? Like, what's the deal with that? Let me read this first quote for you, though. Augustus motions me to stand by him near a statue of a blind maiden holding a scale and a sword. It drowns in ivy. The jackal joins us. My first thought was that this statue is just supposed to represent a sense of place. It's on this white cobblestone area, and this is an icon or figure from our world, like Lady Justice or Justicia was the goddess of justice in Roman mythology and was introduced by Emperor Augustus. So he's miscasting it intentionally. And the more I kind of got out of thinking maybe it's just a sense of place, it's more so something that Pierce Brown is trying to illustrate. Because you have this figure of justice in this world, but yet this world is so unjust. That's what I think is happening here. I think this is a commentary and a device. This act that Adrius commits is an ultimate perversion of justice. And it's just hitting you so hard. It's flagrant even. There's moments where Darrow is poisoned and he's holding the box, which is Fitchner's head in his lap, and he collapses backwards, leaning against the statue. I mean, that's really illustrative right there. No, I, I think it's absolutely a device, but I think it's also a bit of a social commentary on behalf of Pierce on his own work. He's very much built this world kind of as this descendant of a Roman Greco one. In that same way, as you pointed out, that this would be very familiar to them. You know, they would very much idealize this sense of blind justice that's carried out with a swift sword. But you're right, like it's it's not real. Like they don't have blind justice. It's the absolute opposite of blind justice. And I think that it's actually depicting this dilapidated statue, a statue that's actually been neglected in a sense, that actually parallels the neglect that they've given the sense of justice throughout time, even though that ideal is descended from the Greeks and Romans who originated that idea in the first place. There's one last reference to Lady Justice. Victor crawls towards me, blood leaking from her. Amid all this, Roke stands a statue apart. I focus on the parallel between Roke and Victra. On one hand, you have this man who considered himself to be a brother of Darrow and just learned that he's a slave. He says, we're not brothers. You contrast that with Victra. Her dying wish is to drag herself over to Darrow and just make sure he understands that she had nothing to do with this, that she still loves him and is still incredibly loyal to him. That's amazing to me. This is the season two finale of Hail Reaper. Hail Victra, and hail the gory damn Reaper of Mars. Hail Reaper.
Joshua Ramsey, with editing and sound design by Math Ardelia. If you enjoy what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. And follow at HailReaperPod on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for updates, giveaways, and more. You can support the show directly by joining our Patreon community, where we issue monthly bonus content, exclusive artwork, and hang about with all the howlers in the Discord. Visit patreon.com slash HailReaper to learn more. This is Broadcast signing off. Until next time, hail the gory damn reaper. Broadcast, yeah? If you're hearing this, I'm away from my post. In my absence, I've routed all lines via patch bay to their corresponding channels. So if you know the frequency of the party you're trying to reach, just dial it at any time. And if you try to reach me, leave a message after the tone. Cast, it's Thistle. I know you're on leave, but I'm afraid we've just got new orders. Report to the Archgovernor's estate at once. Imperator Fabii will brief you on the details. Don't keep us waiting, Howler. You know Daryl will want us packed.